0: hello everyone and welcome to danger on delmarva my name is Rhonda Franny jefferson and thank you so much for taking some time to listen today this podcast explores tragedies that have taken place on or have strong links to the delmarva peninsula this peninsula is on the east coast firmly in the mid-atlantic region the delmarva peninsula is made up of delaware Maryland locales that are on the eastern side of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and the eastern part of Virginia. It is a wonderful place to live, but as with every place, no matter how calm and cordial, it can hold secrets that may have an explosive ending, feel the impact of Mother Nature, and sometimes the residents of the peninsula are subject to engineering failures. Today, we explore the almost surreal murder of Christine Belford and Beth Mulford, along with the injury to two other individuals. This was done so that the children that Christine shared with her ex-husband would no longer be in her custody. Her ex-husband sought to retain control of his ex-wife from afar with a cyber war brewing that Christine was not even aware of. Before I start with the story, I would like to let everyone know that this podcast reflects my personal interest in true crime, disasters, and tragedies, and more importantly, the exploration of how or why an event occurred to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and decisions of others. I mean no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the podcast. I have obtained facts for this episode through all publicly available sources from the internet, YouTube, and any other documentaries available, even through streaming services. In some cases, personal observations about the area or knowledge about certain areas may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes, and as I have gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee that everything involving accuracy, completeness, or validity is 100% accurate, but I always strive my best to double-check all sources. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, and time delays, such as if there are further updates after the publication of this podcast. As a warning, each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various instances. This episode is a little different than those that I've covered in the past. Usually the event that took place was just that, one event, whereas this case spans a number of years with important events taking place throughout the story until everything came to a heartbreaking end in February of 2013. In the narrative itself, I will try And I emphasize the word try to stick with just the facts then after the story is told review some important points and share some of my opinions this may also be a little bit longer than my usual episodes and also as I was finishing typing up my notes on Wednesday a news story did come up about a supreme court decision and it was regarding free speech Though the decision was not directly related to this case and the events around that decision were vastly different, the decision itself can open up a Pandora's box of legal ambiguity and that's where some of the information and facts on the cases can overlap. So I will discuss this more towards the end of the episode. Now for this event there are many more people involved than in some of the other cases that I've covered so I just want to give a brief rundown of who's who um, before I really get into the story and a couple times I may just add a reminder in since there are a number of people so to begin with Christine Balford was a mother to four young daughters her friend Laura also known as Beth Mulford, was a mother wife nurse and teacher. Michael Manley and Stephen Reinhardt were Capitol Police officers stationed at the Newcastle County Courthouse. David Matuszewicz was Christine Belford's ex-husband. He was an optometrist and who up until a little after their divorce ran a very successful practice. His father was Thomas Matuszewicz. He was a father and grandfather and a former police officer, coincidentally in the same town that my husband is from, Vineland, New Jersey. David's mother and Thomas's wife was Lenore. She was a stay-at-home mom through the years that her children were growing up. There was one other child in the family, Amy, who was a mother, wife, and nurse. Katie was Christine's daughter from her first marriage and Detective Corporal Jeffrey Schreiner was involved throughout the case. There are also three daughters that Christine did have with David, but while Katie appeared quite prominently in an investigation discovery show about this case, their names were not always used except for the oldest. So for their privacy, I will continue not to use their names. When you enter a courthouse, you expect safety, metal detectors, security, lots of police around while waiting to testify. Even though a courthouse will undoubtedly have a number of accused and convicted criminals, there are still safeguards to protect everyone in the building. But sometimes those safeguards fail for any number of reasons, human error, insufficient security, or just being blissfully naive that anything bad can happen in your sleepy little hamlet. But not every town is sleepy, and just because you live there, assuming that nothing could ever go wrong or happen to you, it doesn't make it true. It doesn't make a town immune from a man-made tragedy, and this happened in February of 2013 on the 11th. A scene that must have been both surreal and very, very quick happening in a split second and slow motion at the same time. By the time it was done, two were injured and two were dead. So was the killer. And while technically, of course, he did die, I don't want to include him in the same number as his victims. Just to go off on A side thought, I don't know about you, but when I read news or hear about a tragic event and the perpetrator is included in the number of the dead, I feel that it's dishonoring the innocent people who lost their lives. I know that that number is technically correct and that's why it's used, but emotionally it does not sit right with me. Someone who takes a life should not be included in the number of victims, but this is just my opinion. In the immediate aftermath of this event, it was very confusing. Misinformation was running rampant about who the actual shooter was. I even found a few articles online that contained the misinformation with no updated or edited information to clarify. That day started as most others for Christine Belford. She was trying to get her four daughters ready for school and Katie, her oldest helped her mother out as best as she could. Christine had court that morning to face her ex-husband. She did not want to go. She had even called the courthouse to see if she really had to be there. And she was told that yes, she did. Her neighbor and friend, Beth Mulford was going to attend the hearing with her for moral support. So to understand what led to these events, we need to know a little bit about the story of Christine and her ex-husband David. Divorce happens. Child custody and support agreements, disputes, those types of things happen frequently with varying degrees of civility. Some couples are completely amicable recognizing that they can still remain friends and co-parents putting the needs of their children first. Some divorces are acrimonious on both sides with each parent vehemently going against the other allegations flying all in an effort to show superiority then there are the ones where one parent falls on the side of the children and wants to do everything that they can to remain friends or at least civil with their ex-partner but the other parent falls onto the side of maintaining control and power and this is what happened on that day Again, at least in my opinion, there really wasn't much information about Christine's younger years. What I did hear from an episode of Evil Kin on the ID Channel, Season Four, Episode One, is Christine didn't necessarily have a horrible childhood, by the description, but it was not a stable one. Her parents' relationship was on again, off again, leading Christine to, sti- to seek stability in her adult life. I will also be using this episode of Kin for a source for a lot of the backstory. Christine and David met in his optometrist office. She had become an employee in the office and she had just gone through a divorce. She had her daughter, Katie, to take care of as well. David was very close with his family. His father and mother, Thomas and Lenore, stopped by the office frequently. They had been married over 30 years and had two loving children. David's sister, Amy, was a nurse. She was married with a child of her own also, and she would stop by her brother's practice often as well. Christine had always wanted a tight-knit family, and seemingly one had fallen into her lap. She had everything that she needed with this group, job, family, happiness, stability david and christine married in october of 2001 katie admitted that her mother was happy and that he was a good stepdad he and christine had three children rather quickly all daughters it was at this time that Lenore and tom moved in with their son's family having four children in a home could be overwhelming and having grandparents on hand to lend their hands could be invaluable Lenora had shown that she could raise successful children. Having spent her married life as a stay-at-home mother, you could see the influence that she had on her children. They were both successes. They worked in the medical field to make other people's lives better, and they lived for their family. However, things did not work out quite the way that Christine had hoped. Katie even at her young age, observed that Lenore seemed to want to fill the role of the girl's mother, not their grandmother. Even when Christine was home, Lenore would step in to be the mother figure rather than allowing Christine to fulfill the role that she loved. She let David know how she felt, but he sided with his parents. The helping hands that Chris thought she had were now figuratively smothering her. It remained difficult because the family had found out that The youngest daughter was on the autism spectrum. Christine wanted to address the treatment and care for the youngest daughter by adhering to the medically accepted treatments. David had other thoughts. He thought that since he was in the medical field, he knew what was best, even though his area of expertise was eyes, not children. One of my children is on the spectrum. And while I like my optometrist, I would not go to him for advice on my son's treatment. And this all became too much for Christine. Her in-laws were taking over her role and were overbearing. She received no support from David and was not he was not acting rationally about the treatment of their youngest daughter. So about five years after the marriage and after the disagreement on how to treat their daughter's autism, she filed for divorce. And in even the best divorces, if there is such a thing, There's usually at least one disagreement, and this divorce was anything but the best. Christine was left in a situation where she had very few options. David had kept their three girls, while the oldest, Katie, had had to move out of the family home with her mother, but then she went to live with a family friend. Christine had to move in with her grandmother. See, Christine had still worked for David's optometrist practice. He fired her and I will review my opinion on that later on. There were allegations made by David. He questioned Christine's mental health, citing a bipolar diagnosis and saying that she was an unfit mother. The judge saw through David's games and ruled for joint custody with weekend visitation. Now, what I find interesting is that David said he knew how to treat his daughter's autism because he had medical knowledge, so... If he had such vast medical knowledge outside of optometry, I would think that he would know that just because someone has a mental illness diagnosis, it doesn't mean that they can't be a good parent. That idea is insulting and just plain wrong. And again, I am trying to stick with the facts, but these are again important points that do show the thought process that David has. Christine did try to keep the relationship civil though. When David said that he and his mother were going to take the girls to Disneyland for two weeks in August of 2007, she had no concerns. However, after two weeks had passed and she could not get in touch with him, she contacted the New Newcastle County Police. The assigned detective was Corporal Jeffrey Schreiner. And at first he didn't think that this case would take too long. He initially thought, what I think a lot of people would have thought, is that David was just trying to optimize his time with the children and would be home shortly. He tried to contact David by cell phone, and when that did not bring about a response, he contacted Tom and Amy, who both had the same response to questions about where their family members could be. That response was, I don't know. Tom didn't even seem concerned about not hearing from his wife for that long. Schreiner quickly changed his mind about how long and complicated of a case this would be. The detective felt after learning more about the family that David would not hurt the children, but Schreiner still felt he needed to act quickly to get the daughters back home to their mother. He reached out to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children for their assistance and resources. In the meantime, tips were coming in and Christine would fly out to different places to follow up on those tips. But each time she had her hopes dashed, David would not need to worry about supporting himself either. They had been living in the RV that they left for for their trip to Disneyland, which of course was just a ruse. David had forged Christine's signature on paperwork for a home equity loan for almost $250,000. He had also sold his optometrist practice for around 900,000. During the investigation, Shriner felt that David was not a normal father, but David would not be on the run with his daughters forever. With the help of the FBI and a hit on the passports going from Panama to Nicaragua, David was stopped while taking one of his daughters to school. Schreiner was finally able to let Christine know that her daughters had been found. Christine flew to Nicaragua as soon as she could. In some ways, it was an awkward reunion because David had convinced the girls that their mother was dead and they had to be in an emotional seesaw at this point. They had relied on their father and grandmother solely over one and a half years. They were now being taken taken from David and that grandmother and given to the mother that David had told them had killed herself, that she had left them I can't imagine what the girls were going through and what they were thinking. So after David was apprehended, he came up with a new defense, stating that Christine was sexually abusing their oldest daughter. Just to clarify, this was not Katie, but the oldest daughter that they had together. During the custody battle, he did not bring this up, nor did he contact the police, Children's Protective Services, or even file a motion to end joint custody, at which time he could make these allegations. He just took the girls and ran. He was not believed again because there was no evidence of abuse and because he had not made these allegations before in an effort to try to protect his children, they did not seem valid. David was charged with international parental kidnapping and bank fraud because of the forged signature on the home equity loan, and he received four years, five months. Lenore was charged with child endangerment and got 18 months. Christine was relieved while they were in jail. While initially she had been very amicable about custody and did not want to deny their father's access to the girls. Now she knew that she had to step up and do what she thought needed to be done. She filed to have David's parental rights terminated, and she hoped to have everything taken care of while they were in prison. However, Amy and Tom were still free and this added to Christine's stress level. Tom and Amy had moved to Texas while Lenore and David were on the run with the girls. They didn't bother to tell Corporal Schreiner, by the way, but if my son, wife and grandkids were missing, I would make sure that the detective knew where to find me and how to contact me so he could give me any updates. Moving and not notifying the detective was a huge red flag. During this time, an ex-girlfriend of David's reached out to Christine on social media. Her name was Tabitha Wren. She provided support and comfort to Christine, or so Christine thought. Tabitha was still, for some unknown and unimaginable reason, still in David's pocket. She was able to glean information about the girls, find out where they were going to be, sometimes even procuring pictures. Tabitha was a real estate agent and was even able to get another agent to provide information about Christine's house. I could not find anywhere if she was ever charged with anything, but it provides food for thought. Should there really be any punishment for something like this? Does it cross the line? Really what punishment should be held for something like this? Lenora was released in September of 2010. During the time in jail, she had still been able to attack Christine. She would send letters to people saying that Christine was abusive. And now that she was out, she and Amy started to mount a campaign against their ex-in-law. They would post videos online saying she was unfit to be a mother, making allegations of sexual abuse, and even getting video of the girls while they were in public. The campaign grew as emails, letters, or videos were sent to churches, neighbors, schools, is saying that Christine was unfit, mentally ill, and abusing her oldest daughter. David was released after three and a half years in April of 2012. His parental rights had been terminated, which in essence terminated Lenore, Tom, and Amy's rights. Chris was fearful. She knew that they would be angry. So she installed security cameras, got dogs as pets, and kept bats and knives around the house for protection. Meanwhile, in Texas, David's life was not going well. He had been sent to a halfway house close to his parents' home in Texas. He also found that he did owe $60,000 in child support. He decided to fight it and filed a motion in Delaware courts to do so. He did receive permission from his probation officer to go. So this takes us to February 11th, 2013. Christine was nervous and she really didn't want to go but she knew she had to. Laura, or Beth Mulford, was a mother, wife, daughter, friend, and was dearly loved. She was a compassionate nurse and educator. In her career, she had served as a nurse, an inpatient safety coordinator at a pharmaceutical company, a school nurse, and she also taught nursing classes. Her life was devoted to others. She was there to lend support. David and Tom got to the courthouse a little early. Lenore did not go to court. David went through the doors, then stood in line to wait for the metal detectors, which he cleared. At around 8 o'clock in the morning, the courthouse was very busy. People were coming in for cases, some of the staff was just coming in, and it was probably the busiest time of the day. As Christine and Beth walked through the doors of the courthouse, they did not have time to respond or react to what happened next. Thomas Matuszewicz had shot both of them. Two Capitol Police officers that were there fired in response, hitting Thomas, but not critically. These officers were Michael Manley and Stephen Reinhardt. Thomas went out the front door and shot himself. In one article, I had read that another man was injured, but that was not substantiated by other articles, so I cannot say if this is true or not. Corporal Schreiner heard the radio call about the shooting at the courthouse. Of course, he went there immediately to lend help and support. When he found out the idea of the victim, he thought that the gunman had to be David. As he went to the body to view it, to his surprise, he saw that it was Tom. And actually, numerous reports at first indicated that David was the shooter. Admittedly, I've always been a little confused about this case until I started researching this. The first image that comes to my mind when thinking about this episode was a picture that I'd seen of David, not Thomas. But then I would hear pieces of information about the actual age of the shooter and know that it did not match up to Thomas's picture, but it just always pops into my head automatically. The mistake as far as who was reported originally to be the shooter um, is believed to be from an anonymous police source who provided the wrong name. But early on into the investigation, more people than just the police thought that the shooter had to have been David. David had tried to slide out of the courthouse to avoid questioning, but he didn't know that the detective on his original case was there schreiner caught up to him and david acted like he knew nothing about what had just happened he acted as though he just showed up and then all of this had happened around him that he didn't know that it was his dad that had killed his ex-wife he apparently didn't even know she was dead or at least that's what he expected everybody to believe i i'm thinking about this as a daughter if this happened at a location where i knew my parent was at and I had heard gunshots. I wouldn't want to try to find my parent in the aftermath of all this commotion. So I do admit I have some trouble understanding how he thought that the police would believe that. At this time, Katie was just scrolling through her phone like so many of us do every day. She saw about the shooting at the courthouse and knew. She fell to the floor distraught. In David's car, they found a cattle prod, Kevlar, knives, ammunition, handcuffs, a hit list, you name it. He had violated his probation with this and was held. They found Lenore visiting a friend in a nearby town of Elkton, Maryland. I almost wonder if that's on purpose. I wonder if she thought that it would be harder to send law enforcement after her if they had to cross state lines to arrest her. In her car, they found ammo, handguns, and pictures of the girls. There was immediately an order put in place that Lenora was to have no contact with the children. Amy, David's sister, filed for custody. Yes, you heard that. Amy filed for custody. The courts, or nobody, for that matter, believed that Lenora and David were not involved. Amy was also a source of stalking um, her sister-in-law. Subsequent to the shooting, law enforcement found letters from David while still incarcerated. Directing his sister on what to do to leave information on public websites, accusing Christine of sexual abuse and being an unfit mother. They even set up a website and YouTube channel themselves. They sent supposed results from polygraph tests and letters to around 20 people to show that they were telling the truth about the abuse. Even though the daughter herself said she was not abused. Christine wrote to her family court attorney after David's parental rights were terminated. Here is a quote from that letter. David has nothing to lose at this point. He has lost everything. He may allow me to survive, to suffer. I may survive long enough to watch the girls be harmed. I may even go missing. All of this could be possible. The following cases against David, Lenore and Amy would be landmark cases in the ever-changing world of technology and how it changes our lives, both good and bad. A statute called cyber-stalking resulting in death had been around since 2006, but there had never been a conviction. There would be two after this case was done. In all, Lenore and David were charged with conspiracy to commit interstate stalking, actual interstate stalking, and cyber-stalking resulting in death. Amy was only convicted of conspiracy to commit interstate stalking and cyber-stalking resulting in death. They all received life sentences. Amy's lawyer tried to argue that she should have not gotten the life sentence. He felt that the sentence was too harsh. Given that Amy was not charged with the other crimes, mainly because she had not actually traveled with the rest of her family to Delaware, During the trial, the jury was asked, and I quote, determine whether Belford's death was a reasonably foreseeable result of this campaign and whether her death could be expected to follow as a natural consequence of her previous participation, her in this case being Amy. He continued that a credible argument could be made that the father acted on his own in killing his ex-daughter-in-law, the judge wrote, But still, her participation was inextricably interwoven in the lead-up to the double murder, the judge said. She should have known a murder was bound to happen at some point or another. Whether she was aware of the specific plans or not, he basically reasoned. So Amy's conviction did seem to be the one that was most wrought with questions. She had never typed the words murder or death or shooting. She didn't travel with the family. but. In my opinion, and in the opinion of the jurors, she knew she was still guilty. However, something else that occurred was that as the family was leaving for Delaware, Thomas left a note for Amy detailing his funeral arrangements. Reasonable and foreseeable result was a term that was used a few moments ago. I think that given her involvement in the attacks on her sister-in-law online, and knowledge of how the whole family felt, coupled now with a letter detailing funeral plans, this would lead any reasonable person to see that something bad was going to happen. So now we know what happened and who the players were, and this seems like a very clear case of who the bad guys were and weren't. So just some points that I found interesting in this case and some of my thoughts on those. As with so many cases, the lives of the murderers are showcased more than the lives of the victims. More history and in-depth analysis is done about them because on a criminal and psychological level, there is much to be learned. Professionals take what they learn to both try to prevent something from happening again and to learn more about the criminal psyche to profile future suspects of other crimes. At least this is what we can tell ourselves. Or, we can also face it, that scandal sells. Scandal draws us in, and by comparison, we can feel better about ourselves. By the way, I'm not a psychologist or have anything more than a couple of college courses on the subject, but from my observations in general, I feel pretty confident in saying that scandal sells. And in many cases, it's the murderer and his accomplices that seem more scandalous. When I searched for Christine Belford to try to find out some more information, I got tons of results. Unfortunately, it was the wrong Christine Belford. There is an actress, one who I've seen in dozens of shows. You know, one of those actors that you see in loads of shows or movies, but you don't necessarily know their name. Even an online article for the Christine Belford involved in this case had a picture of the actress. I was going to have to be very careful about what I looked up. And even adding words like Delaware, the abbreviation for Delaware, or courthouse did not help narrow the search. I tried to even find her obituary to glean some information, but even that was scarce. Another thing that I could not find a lot of information on was Amy's child. Now this may be because the child was a minor, and I feel very, very badly for that child as well. And other than being mentioned at the very beginning of the Evil Kin episode, there were no further mentions. I did happen to find one article where her husband was interviewed after the events, and he said that he had seen his father-in-law about a week earlier. So I would think that when she moved to Texas, her husband and child came too. This was never explicitly said though in any article or documentary that I could find on this case. But this did make me think was amy so obsessed with what her brother was saying about his ex-wife that she was willing to put time with her son on the line did she understand that this was even a possibility i would hope that she understood what the repercussions could be but frankly i can't really seem to wrap my mind around the motivations of anyone in this family and along the topic of love for family i think that i can safely say that david was not doing what he did to try to protect his daughters. If he truly felt that their mother was abusing them, more specifically the oldest daughter, then he would have taken those allegations to the appropriate authorities. I feel that once he realized the courts did not buy his allegations of Christine being an unfit mother due to mental illness, he knew that they wouldn't buy these allegations both because they were baseless, and he already had a record of making different unfounded allegations. I feel that if he truly loved his children, he wouldn't have told them that she had killed herself. Doing this gave David a complete control because while Lenora was there to fill the role of a mother, David was the only parent that they had left, or so they believed. Not only that, he would seem like the better parent to his children because he chose to be with them. I feel that parents who truly love their children will put the differences aside and parent alongside their ex-partner. The children, when divorces are amicable, then the children aren't played against the other parent. The children feel love and they feel important on both sides, but by David's actions, I feel that he just wanted control. And to segue, still on the lines of control, I would have to question whether or not terminating Christine's employment was legal or if Christine could have actually filed for wrong for termination. Delaware is an at-will state, so what this means is an employer can terminate an employee without an actual reason, unless the termination is done based on means or basis of discrimination, retaliation for whistleblowing, um, if an employee refuses to do something illegal, and a number of other reasons. So there are definitely exceptions to the at-will employment I don't believe there is a very specific clause in there, though, that mentions if the boss is the soon-to-be ex-husband of the employee, then there are protections. However, no matter what, David would have the upper hand. He would still be able to maintain control of Christine. He was both the employer and the one who had access to more money. Christine probably didn't feel that she could do anything. However, just my opinion in this unique situation, I feel it should fall under some type of clause that prevents an employee from being fired because of the status of a personal relationship between a boss and an employee, and that it has ended. And who knows, after the Me Too movement, it may be easier to bring these suits, or women may feel more empowered to do so. Just because this situation included a married couple, not ones who were just dating, It shouldn't mean that David got a free pass to fire her and that Christine had no options. If they had not been married and a superior within the workplace dated an employee, then fired that employee or retaliated against them after that relationship ended, that would be clear grounds that the termination was unlawful. There have even been CEOs who've stepped down after having a consensual relationship just because of the way it looked. To me a termination whether it be during a dating situation or a marriage situation should fall under a sexual harassment retaliation though this was not an overt observable action within the workplace such as telling lewd jokes or having suggestive pictures up on the wall the fact that she filed for divorce and would no longer be in a relationship with her boss should lead to the protection of employment If David did not feel that they could work together amicably, he should have contacted an attorney to see what options he had. I'm not an attorney, so I don't know what offerings they could have made. We also don't know if Christine would have still felt uncomfortable working in that workplace, but I feel there should have been options for her, whether it be a severance package or hours where she would not come in contact with David, such as working from home to do medical billing or coding, things like that. This just does not seem right. He could have just acted like an adult and treated Christine with respect while she was in the office. Based on how she handled the custody situation before he kidnapped the girls, I believe she could have treated him with respect. But he needed to maintain his control even after she filed for divorce. So this way he was able to dictate at least the one place that she would not be able to work. So what lengths did David's family try to go to to prove that Christine was an unfit mother? They even sent out copies of polygraph tests. These tests supposedly showed that they weren't lying about the abuse, but I have a lot of questions about these. Which members of the family were polygraphed? What questions were asked and how specifically were they asked? How long had the polygrapher been doing the polygraph tests? In this scenario, I'm actually going to give Amy and Lenore and Tom the benefit of the doubt in that they truly believe David's claims. In no way am I excusing what they did, but what I'm saying is in in regards to the polygraph test that Amy, Lenore, and Tom could have actually passed them. Because if they truly believed the allegations that David was saying, when the polygrapher asked the questions, they were answering truthfully to their knowledge. Also, the wording of the questions would be very important, such as if a question said, did David tell you that Christine was abusing the children? They would answer yes, but it's not actually, in my opinion, passing a polygraph test. It's all based on hearsay in that case. David could have spun a web of lies very masterfully. He may have had his family believing that these allegations were true, and if he had convinced them, and why would they not believe their son and brother, then they would pass the test. Or the questions were phrased in such a way that it wouldn't make it seem they passed the test. But going back to technology again, I've also heard that there are companies that will actually print out results of a polygraph test and make them look legitimate. There is another person who's been arrested for murder, Batisha Stouch. She is the stepmother of a child named Gannon Stouch. He went missing and was later found deceased. Before he was found, Batisha tried to prove that she was in no way involved in his disappearance she tried to provide results of a fake polygraph to reporters. But what she did not count on is the fact that there were even some things that a fake polygraph site would not do. My thoughts about a fake polygraph site is that they're used for cheating spouses or partners for the most part. In the case of Letitia Stouch, when a supervisor at the company saw the test and the questions that were included, he or she blocked it from being delivered. According to an article on this case, the test was denied because of content of her questions. Quote, a rep- representative with the company told her they reserved the right to not send the report if they believed it was in connection with illegal activities. So if polygraphed results were sent out, were they passed because David's family believed him when he made allegations? Were the questions asked in such a way that his family wouldn't be lying? Or could they have been bought off a site such as the one that Letitia Stouch had tried to use? Now this case immediately brought to mind another case. The case of Janelle Potter has been covered pretty frequently, at least on some of the sites that I visited and in some of the media such as documentaries from Investigation ID and YouTube. The Janelle Potter case is extremely convoluted. If you're not familiar with it, I'm going to try to explain it as straightforward as I can. There are some interesting parallels in the stories, but then also some major differences. If I can, I will try to find a very comprehensive documentary or article to link it in the description of the podcast. So, a lot of this information, though, what I'll be saying over the next few moments, are actually just things that I know from all of the documentaries and reading that I've done. In the Janelle Potter case, she had a crush on Billy Payne. Billy had started a family with Billy Joe Hayworth and had no interest in Janelle romantically. Janelle did not want to accept this at all. What she did is she started to send emails to her family her mother and father who she lived with she had been very sheltered in her upbringing and in these emails she was a cia agent and she was letting janelle's parents know that janelle was being harassed because basically she was too pretty and everybody was jealous The CIA agent talked of all the bullying that she was receiving and that Janelle was in danger from Billy Joe Hayworth and Billy Payne. The CIA agent said that he knew someone had to do something to protect Janelle. During this time though, Janelle had actually started dating someone named Jamie Curd. Jamie was actually Billy Payne's cousin, so that just adds another layer to this story so in essence there were a lot of times where janelle would go to her computer which was shared by her mother and father type up a letter or i'm sorry an email send it to her mother and later that day her mother would go to the same computer check her email and see that there was this message from a cia agent yeah um her parents actually believed this wholeheartedly so did her boyfriend and she had them so convinced that you know that she was in danger and they decided to act on something Um, even one time there was a brick or a rock that was thrown through the window and I believe it had one of their names on it had one of um, either Billy Joe or Billy's name on it so you know a lot of things did not make sense Um, pretty much everything did not make sense Um, Janelle used Facebook as a way to harass Um, Billy Joe Hayworth and Billy Payne, they were just trying to raise their family. They had a little boy and they were just trying to be happy. And this woman, whether it be because she wanted drama, she, you know, wanted to manipulate things, she was narcissistic or any of those reasons, she ended up creating this story using Facebook and email that somehow was so believable at least to her parents and her boyfriend that they killed Billy Joe Payne. I'm sorry, Billy Joe Hayworth and Billy Payne. Now, looking at this from the outside, I think all of us can see that none of it made sense. You know, why would the CIA agent who, you know, is trying to protect the world, theoretically here, be interested and someone who's being harassed on Facebook. At least that's the story that Janelle told through her fake CIA agent. She had actually even used the name of a former classmate as the agent. So you know, there were some similarities in the fact that Janelle and David both were able to convince their loved ones that there was a danger in Janelle's case to herself, in David's case to his children and their family members believe them without doubt and i I just can't wrap my mind around something that would make someone pick up a gun or do whatever to kill someone based on allegations that they have not seen themselves first of all go to the police go to You know whoever that you can go to report this but it's never okay to resort to violence in anything you know it's just very hard to understand how in both cases that someone was able to just so expertly manipulate everyone that innocent people ended up losing their lives. I think David's pleasure came from pulling strings. It was like he was a puppeteer. If he in my opinion had loved his children, he would not have acted as he did. True love would mean not taking children away from another loving parent or that parent away from the child. Christine terminated David's parental custody because she felt it was in the best interest of the children after what he had done. He had shown complete disregard for the mental well-being of his children by telling them that she had committed suicide. I think it's hard to get into anybody's head who has done something like this. I don't think most of us could really think about manipulating our loved ones to an extent that we basically don't care what happens to the rest of their lives. David had to know that there was a possibility of either prosecution or in the case of his father death. So it makes me wonder if he was even capable of love at all but I do have some thoughts on both of these cases and how they related to cyber-stalking. I think the Janelle Potter case fell more into the realm of cyber-stalking. She actually used emails and Facebook to harass others, to spread lies, and it seems like she, to seem like she was in danger and being targeted. The internet was her main weapon. In David's case, he communicated with his family, those who would actually perpetrate the act either face-to-face or by letter. He did not actually depend on the internet to create the whole scenario. While yes, he used it as a tool, it wasn't the main thing that he used. If the internet wasn't there, he still used letters to try to convince people um, that his ex-wife was a bad parent. So... You know janelle potter her case she did harass billy joe and billy on facebook david really didn't need to do all of that Um, janelle lived in a fairly isolated world and she needed to do everything by internet david was not quite so isolated and he acted in ways that did not necessarily need the internet i truly believe that christine's murder would have happened internet or no internet the location might have been different Beth may not have been there at the time or anyone else. There may not have been witnesses, but I still think it would have happened. I don't think that the murders of Billy Payne and Billy Joe Hayworth would have happened if Janelle didn't use the internet. Now, some of my opinion to follow in this next part is going to go into a direction I really didn't think it would. Um, Originally, I intended to discuss you know, my opinion on free speech and online activity. But while I was typing the notes for this, my newsfeed had a story pop up about a cheerleader who has said a few things about her cheer squad in school um on social media. And as a result, she was suspended from cheerleading for a year. The Supreme Court decided eight to one, so this was not even a close you know close call here that the school overstepped their bounds basically um, what she had said was f using of course the full word um, f cheer, f softball, f everything and so as to whether or not the school overstepped their bounds I think they may have but at other times I may not be as sure I don't know what I would think if my child was receiving some of that information if I was the one making the post I would want to have all the freedom in the world to express my thoughts if I was someone who attended that school and played softball or if I was a cheerleader I might see that post and it could upset me you know I might be friends with that person and to see that they were putting down something that I loved you know that of course would upset a person And so in those cases, my feelings might be that the poster shouldn't have had that much freedom, but it also depends on what's said in a post. This whole cheerleader case can open up a Pandora's box of what can be said outside of school. As the Supreme Court was making the decision on just this topic, and they did keep strictly to this topic, it could lead us down yet another proverbial rabbit hole. The Supreme Court even admitted that there does need to be some oversight and action by schools in regards to what's said on social media, but that would have to be hashed out later because they were ruling just on this case. The Supreme Court said that in terms of cyberbullying, that, I quote from an article here, specifics of those circumstances would need to be sorted out in future cases, end quote. So until then, schools are left walking on eggshells. And so I guess it's good that it's summer break right now. The Supreme Court gave some direction that was about as clear as mud and no offense meant to the Supreme Court on this truly. Like I said, they made a decision on the case that they had and that's what they do. The case presented to them was a narrow focus and they ruled on that. But technology is advancing at sometimes alarming rates. By the time that law can catch up to one new technology, another one may have been invented or updated, and that makes the previous technology obsolete, which then means it will take some time for the law to catch up on that. The law always seems to be just one step behind, and sometimes even more, because new law is not made unless a case is filed about a certain type of technology or social media so when schools start up again and there's something said on social media that many feel should not be said there could be legislation to follow some people might be railed against then the same thing could be accepted by another half of the people you know when i started to write an opinion on this i really wrote about 10 to 12 pages on this topic i was very analytical in the case and you know, it was being very detailed, but then I took a step back and realized that while some fundamentals about the internet usage may apply here, it is a completely different topic. It would be interesting to see though, how laws change or and are adapted to fit the current technology and how quickly those laws can be adapted as tech is evolving. To tie this back to Christine Belford's case, some people actually see that the Matusiewicz were actually martyrs. I'm not going to say the name of the website, but while I was searching for information, I came across this site and I don't I'm not saying the name so that I'm not driving traffic there. I really don't want to endorse the site at all. But basically from the title of the site, I you know, clicked on it and I thought I was going to be reading things about how Christine was strong how you know, she was trying to stand up against someone that was controlling her that she did everything that she could try to do to protect her family but I was very wrong this site boasted some type of conspiracy theory that I really couldn't make sense of and the conspiracy even pointed back to a very prominent legal and political family from Delaware. Um, At this time, one of the members of that family was the attorney general. Um, The family was not the DuPonts, so I'll just leave it at that and you can probably figure out what family it was. However, this is that site's right to free speech. The site, in my opinion, could easily mislead impressionable people down the wrong path. But at the end of the day, each person makes their own decisions and they have to live with the consequences. So just as I feel that David was the mastermind in all of this, that he is the most culpable because he was the one who was making up lies and allegations, Thomas Lenore and Amy, they made the decisions to do what they did. They would not be in jail or have committed those actions without David's influence but he did not force them to act in that way. They each made decisions that shattered so many lives and they need to pay the consequences. So just another few points to end. I reviewed security measures for the Newcastle County Courthouse after the events of February, 2013. There really haven't been that many changes. There was a door that glass had been shattered during the shooting and so while it was being repaired it was blocked off by um, a wall even though the glass has been repaired that wall remains there with a picket fence on the other side the door had previously been used for people to quickly access the lobby so that there were no long lines outside of the building but that door can no longer be used people cannot linger in the lobby as before and what this means is if you're Let's just say you were there and you're waiting for a ride, it's raining or snowing, you have to stand out there in the snow. Long lines can occur when jurors are trying to get into the building, each one of them have to go through security. So a lot of the people who work there do have some negative feelings about the door being blocked. However, the courthouse has implemented an alert type of system for each cases. Um, they can flag cases which they feel will be highly emotional. On the one hand, this is a step in the right direction, but on the other, that really is a subjective claim, you know, for someone to look at a case and say, I feel that this one is going to be highly emotional. It does give people kind of an early warning or an early alert, but it's not going to catch everything. They did also hire more officers to work there, though. The two that were shot during the events of February 11th, 2013, who were the officers, they did return to work shortly after the incident. In review of the lower two counties though, Kent and Sussex, the courthouses are inadequate. Um, In the lower parts of the states, um, let's start with the Georgetown Courthouse, which is the one I'm very familiar with i've been called for jury duty into that building five times Um, i did have to go in four times and in one case i actually was an alternate juror that case was dismissed very early on it was um or actually a mistrial but that building prior to 2013 it was a little easier to access but it's really not adequate for the growth that Sussex County has, you know, has experienced. Before 2013, it was very quick getting into the building. After 2013, the jurors were basically huddled in a different entrance while it was raining with a security guard giving us a briefing on what we were about to go through. And I have a couple of medical devices um, and implants that I had to tell them about. You know that let me into the building a little bit earlier because they take a couple of you know, precautions in regards to that but still everybody else was waiting in inclement weather but even more alarming there have been cases where defendants were sitting behind the receptionist instead of in some type of holding cell um that is really really scary Um, Kent County courthouse still, you know, like I said, it's not really adequate in the growth that we've experienced. The security really, it's, it was updated, but a lot more needs to be done. And the governor has allocated over $17 million to try to update the two courthouses. Um, That money has already been earmarked, but that was done seven years after the event. Um, This, that was done in 2020 so what led to this whole case and the events that happened in the Newcastle County Courthouse we may have to ask ourselves does this happen often I know personally a mother that has been through a horribly tragic scenario regarding custody I'm not going to go into that because there's personally myself it's still very hard to talk about but when I was writing this, I also saw another headline about a father killing his children pretty much to hurt his ex. I think to most people, the idea of doing anything such as this is completely alien. The ideas of doing any type of harm to someone intentionally is beyond most people's purview. Um, You know, I'm not talking about self-defense or defense of another, anything like that. I'm talking about, you know, cold calculated murder. I don't think we can ever truly understand the whole psychology in this case. You know, like I said before, David was like a puppeteer. He was pulling the strings of every person in his family. They still hold the responsibility for their actions and deserve any and all punishment that they get, but David is the one that masterminded everything. Christine tried to do everything right in this case, at least for my understanding of what she could do. When she saw the relationship dying and knew that it was a controlling relationship, she got out. She tried to remain civil during custody battles. She didn't fight him when he wanted to take the girls away on a trip. She never imagined that he was actually kidnapping them. She did what she had to do to protect her children and this still happened. There were so many victims in this case. Christine and Beth's families were left heartbroken four girls lost basically their entire adult family, their grandparents, their aunt and mother and their uncle too, because Amy's husband I'm sure is not able to be part of their lives as well. The girls are now living in an undisclosed location. Beth's children, husband, students all lost a compassionate woman and those in the courthouse that day are now scarred with the visions that they saw. Sights, sounds, smells, all of these things can lead us back to a memory and, and that memory is scarred within that building and its walls. There are some attorneys who worked in that building for years who now feel sadness because of what happened. One thing that I would question is the length of the prison stay for both David and Lenore. Even though they were still corresponding by mail, he wasn't there with the rest of his family trying to pull the strings. Yes, he was the girl's father, but the court made a decision based on his actions and he had to abide by it. He brazenly spit into the custody agreement and caused unspeakable pain to his ex-wife and stepdaughter. His original charge of a little over four years was not adequate. Plus that four years included the bank fraud charge. Then, being released early was a slap in the face to the judicial system, in my opinion. There doesn't seem like there was nearly enough time served for what he did. No amount of time served can erase the pain that Christine and Katie felt for those months where they did not have their daughters and sisters with them. This event left a scar on the community. It caused more damage than we can ever really write or speak about. While some safety measures have been implemented in the northernmost county courthouses where this occurred, I'm more than a little shocked that more improvements or construction has not been done on the courthouses in Kent and Sussex County. These buildings stand as a monument to safety and security, and to have them left open for acts of violence, it can just make the community feel like, they're not as safe. As members of a community, though, what we do is we try to support those who are going through difficult situations. If you see something that doesn't seem right with a friend or a loved one, show concern, show compassion and understanding. Make sure that they know that you're there for them. In the description of this episode, I will link information to domestic violent website, for information in case it's needed please don't hesitate to contact someone if you need help and you're in this situation last episode i thought i'd written the hardest episode i'd had mainly because of technical terms but now this episode has quickly surpassed the last one to be the most difficult in terms of understanding what happened or at least trying to One of the things I want to do with this podcast is to look at situations and events, break them down, and try to find ways to prevent them from happening again. I found this case to be very difficult in that area. Yes, maybe there could have been better security at the courthouse. Yes, maybe the sentence should have been longer for David. But as far as Christine is concerned, I feel that she did everything that she was supposed to do with the resources that she had. And it's just hard to get into the mind of someone like David and also the rest of his family to understand why they did what they did and to try to find ways to prevent something like this from happening again. This incident happened in the largest city in Delaware and though we're not the biggest state by land area that was our biggest city but I see it happening through news reports things where innocent people not only with a case such as divorce but any type of relationship where people are are being hurt or killed and those people did nothing wrong and they did try to do everything right so this might just be something where it's not necessarily something physically that we need to change such as the security measures on a building the fact that an individual is physically away from those that he's trying to hurt maybe it needs to go deeper maybe it's looking for those signs that I mentioned earlier maybe it's an awareness of those around us and maybe opening our eyes that you know even if we are in a good situation and a good place in our life we may need to be there to support someone who's not like i said be compassionate and understanding people going through the this type of situation especially someone like christine who it didn't seem like had a lot of external support need to see that other people care this might be why tabitha Wren was so easily able to you know, position herself into Christine's world. And I'm really finding a finding it hard to find a place to stop this episode. I'd really love to be able to give answers to say that everything has been upgraded in all the courthouses across the US, or you know, that everybody can treat each other civilly so that, you know, being a parent to a child will be the first and foremost goal, not trying to have more control over a situation than your ex-partner. So, you know, it's just seems more open ended. Even though the sentences have been passed, those people are in jail, just seeing similar incidents happen over and over again, it's really difficult to find a place to stop. So like I said, I will try to find some resources to link into the description if you feel like you need help or if you know someone who does, that you can provide that information to make sure they understand that they're not alone, that you know, if they do need to get out of a situation where they may not have the same resources as their ex-partner, that you know, they can try to get that support from those around them. Thank you so much for listening today I know this has been an extremely long episode but you know like I said it did stem over a period of years or a number of years not just an event of a day or two so thank you for hanging in there and if you like listening to this podcast I'm going to ask if you can either like the episode or podcast on whichever podcatcher you use, or if you're able to make ratings or leave comments, what that does is increase the, the chances of people finding the podcast. Um, I don't know what all the algorithms say, but I do know that increases the likelihoods that someone who is interested in this type of content can find it. I have not narrowed down specifically what next episode will be, Um, I have reached out to some detectives asking about some cold cases to try to bring awareness to those. Um, Two, I focused on because I saw their faces and they were so young and their lives were taken before they really had a chance to start. And in another, the case is over 40 years old. and. I think awareness needs to be brought to it so that if justice can be had while her loved ones are still here to see it you know, I think that is something that we need to try to do so you know, when I hear back and get to work on those cases, I'll make sure to you know, give an update if you haven't subscribed to my page um, I will leave a link to it in the description as well it's my Facebook page and that way I can, when I put updates on there, you'll be one of the first to see it. I also have um, my contact information such as my email, Twitter, and if you do have any case suggestions, probably Facebook or email is the quickest way to get in touch with me. And again, I really appreciate your patience on this episode, and I look forward to talking to you two weeks from now. Thank you.